Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Tuesday. We're so glad you're with us on the Three Martini Lunch. As of right now, Wall Street is not cratering. In fact, it got off to a pretty nice start. It's tempered a little bit uh, as the morning went on, but uh, hopefully... Days like Monday are behind us, although we're not promising anything. We're sponsored today by Stamps.com. Right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Three Martini. Stamps.com. Enter Three Martini as the code. And, Jim, before we even get to our first martini here, I was at the dinner table last night having a lovely conversation with my wife and kids, and uh, my phone buzzes, and I usually don't like to look at it during dinner, but looked at it, and literally it was a CBS News blast that said this. Coronavirus cannot be cured by drinking bleach or snorting cocaine, despite social media rumors. And that's exactly what their tweet was as well. Jim, I think there are some people looking for an excuse to snort cocaine and possibly drink bleach for some unknown reason. Let me tell you, I don't know a lot about coronavirus, but I'm pretty sure doing either of those is going to do more damage than the virus itself. You know, Greg, are they really sure about this? (laughs) I mean, should they really be jumping to conclusions until they've finished the clinical trials on cocaine and drinking bleach? I mean, you know, as my former colleague Jonah Goldberg used to say, but how do we know Tide Pods aren't delicious? More testing. Don't, don't jump to conclusions. That's what I say. Well, there's always teenagers who will volunteer for something. Basically, my guess is all you know, 100% of the people who drink bleach will not die of the coronavirus. <laughs> That's exactly right. Isn't there a teenage uh, viral game where people are smacking their heads on the concrete now? I, I don't. I don't even know what it's called now. But uh, there's some sort of like nefarious Darwinian society trying to weed out the weak, the foolish, and the gullible. Well, let's talk about coronavirus uh, in our good martini. Uh, that's uh, that's a novel concept here. So let's do that. Uh, as, as you know, Jim, we've talked about it. A lot of people trying to score political points on this. Trump's not doing enough. Trump's overreacting. Uh, Trump's not getting tested. Trump's shaking hands with people who are now self-quarantining. Uh, it's, it's basically an onslaught of criticism, some more justified than others. There have been uh, Democratic politicians from the federal level to Washington Governor Jay Inslee, where, of course, uh, coronavirus is perhaps at its most virulent in the United States at this point, uh, taking very public shots at the president. And you would think that uh, other Democrats would probably follow suit, and a lot of them are. But surprisingly, one who is not, at least not publicly, is California Governor Gavin Newsom. You and I have said probably next to nothing good about Gavin Newsom over the years. But today, it's warranted. He was having a press conference, and he was talking about the cruise ship that had been floating off the coast of California while the coronavirus testing was going on. And then there was a question of where it would actually make landing and make port. And uh, so Matt Gutman of ABC News, and I believe it's the same Matt Gutman who told everyone that all of Kobe Bryant's children were on the helicopter. He was suspended for that, but apparently he's back at work. So he tried to uh, get Gavin Newsom to say something negative about the president. And Newsom, surprisingly, pleasantly surprisingly, was having none of it. Over the past couple of days, President Trump has said that he would prefer if none of the passengers aboard these cruises landed on U.S. soil. Did he mention any of that to you 
in your conference? Yeah, we had a we had a private conversation, but he said we're going to do the right thing, and you have my support, uh, all of our support. Uh, logistically and otherwise. So I, before he made those statements publicly, I had a private conversation with him around 4.30 uh, West Coast time, uh, and he said everything uh, that I could have hoped for. Uh, and we had a very long conversation, uh, and every single thing he said, they followed through on. So I'm, I'm just not interested in, in finding daylight uh, on those statements because uh, every single thing his administration and it starts at the top, uh, including the vice president, uh, has been consistent with uh, the expectation that we repatriate these passengers and we do it in a way that does justice to the spirit that defines the best of our country and the state of California. Jim, I'm sure there'll be a time fairly soon where we're back at it with Gavin Newsom. But uh, this was about the most mature statement I've seen from a prominent Democrat since this whole thing got started. Good for him. Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know whether it's a sense of, of leadership, a sense of, of political maturity, a sense of personal maturity. But, you know, it's not like our system of partisan politics is going to stop forever if we dare express cooperation over an ongoing crisis. Right. It's you know, We're still going to have an election. We're still going to have a campaign. Gavin Newsom is going to have a million and one opportunities to say, I disagree with President Trump. Here's why he's wrong. Don't vote for him, et cetera, et cetera. But a press conference while you're discussing what the state is doing about the coronavirus is not really the time and the place. <laughs> you know, that that you really, let's focus on what's being done. And it's one of those things where this really should not be governors versus the Trump administration. You know, this should be everybody against the coronavirus. And I would not be surprised if you have different part people in different state, local government and, and branches of government having disagreements. But in the end, this is all of us against the coronavirus. That is the problem. That should be goal number one. Um, and, you know, is it possible that, that Gavin Newsom does have an objection to some of those Trump statements? Eh, you probably you know there's a good chance of that. But he knows that if he gets into that, then this, you know, the story then turns into, you know, Newsom denounces Trump during coronavirus. And you know what, guys? And while we're dealing with this, let's just all focus on the coronavirus. Let's just all focus on solutions. Let's all just focus on what, what works. I'll focus on getting the best information to the people. And, you know, it. it is, you said, we, you and I have not had much nice, many nice things to say about Gavin Newsom over the years. I salute him. This is exactly what we need. I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, there comes a time where you got to put aside all that stuff and you have to focus on the actual crisis at hand. So uh, bravo, Gavin Newsom. That's, that's words I did not expect to be saying in a circumstance like this. <laughs> or ever, perhaps. But uh, nonetheless, there it is. And uh, hopefully that's a, a model for uh, others. It's certainly the case that uh, the president can snap right back, as he did with uh, Jay Inslee. So uh, everybody keeping their heads down and working to get through this is uh, is definitely the way to go. Let's talk about Stamps.com, because things need to get done on the business front. Uh, maybe you had to cancel a trip to Grandma's house, and you were going to send some stuff to her. Uh, the post office is still running, and Stamps.com is where it's at. And if you'd rather wish that you weren't at the post office right now waiting in line, you're not alone. And whether you're running a business or keeping up with your schedule, it takes a lot of time and there just aren't enough hours in the day to get all this stuff done and stamps.com makes your life easier that's why you need it anything you can do at the post office you can also do at stamps.com their on-demand postage means you can skip that trip to the post office plus you can save money with discounts that you can't even get at the post office here's what it's all about stamps.com brings all the services 
of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle all of it with ease. You know, maybe you're self-quarantining. Maybe you just don't want to interact with people face-to-face as much as you used to. Maybe you're just antisocial, whatever your reason. You can simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier. Or you know what? Just drop it in your mailbox. You know, no hand-to-hand contact. That sounds even better. It's that simple. Time isn't the only thing you're saving. With Stamps.com, you can get $0.05 off of every first-class stamp and up to 40% off on shipping rates. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. And there's no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It is no wonder that more than 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale, all without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Three Martini. That's Stamps.com, and enter Three Martini, all one word, as your code. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini now. And uh, Joe Biden and guns. We're talking about this again. Seems like it's a weekly occurrence. At least this month it is. Because uh, Joe Biden is campaigning in Michigan. We'll talk more about that in the crazy martini. But uh, he was at a factory, I believe this was yesterday, and a factory worker confronted him about what the factory worker considers an anti-Second Amendment position that Biden has, uh, particularly as a result of his interaction, that being Biden's interaction, with Beto O'Rourke at the Unity Rally in Dallas last week just before Super Tuesday. Now, there's a lot of background here because Biden's on the factory floor and a bunch of other people are chatting nearby this conversation. But the factory worker starts by saying, you're going after our guns, and Biden fires back. I'd like you to explain how you plan to not only keep us working, about how you intend on getting the union vote when there is a large portion of the union workers that are gun enthusiasts and you are actively trying to diminish our Second Amendment right and take away our guns. You're full of All right, thank you. No, no, shush. Shush. I support the Second Amendment. Second Amendment, just like right now, if you yell fire, that's not free speech. And from the very beginning, I have a shotgun, I have a 20 gauge, a 12 gauge, my son's hunt, guess what? You're not allowed to own any weapon. I'm not taking your gun away at all. You need 100 rounds. So when you were in Beto, no. when you said you're going to take our guns, I did not what? say that. That's yeah. not. I did That's not say that. Okay, so the audio is tough there. So the uh, the factory worker says to Biden, "You're going after our Second Amendment rights." Biden says, "You're full of." crap. And that's where the bleep is. He didn't use that word, obviously. And so then the factory worker says, well, when you were with Beto, you said you were going to take the guns. And Biden there at the end, of course, says, I didn't say that. Well, really, uh, here's what happened last week in Dallas. Ladies and gentlemen, el próximo presidente de los Estados Unidos, Joe Biden. Let's do it for Joe. I want to make something clear. I'm going to guarantee you this is not last year's seat of this guy. You're going to take care of the gun problem with me. You're going to be the one who leads this effort. I'm counting on you. I'm counting on you. We need you badly. The state needs you. The country needs you. You're the best. 
And, of course, Beto O'Rourke wants to take AR-15s and uh, AK-47s and other things off the streets. He also wants to limit magazine capacity and on and on and on. So here's the next part of Biden's conversation with the worker where Biden says he's going after those dastardly AR-14s. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Hey, take your, AR, your AR-14s. Your okay, this is not okay. Hold on, hold on. All right. Here's the deal. Are you, are you able to hold a machine gun? I said, are you able to own one? Machine guns are illegal. That's right. So are AR-15s illegal. How is that a machine gun? No, it's not. Semi-automatic. Yeah, do you, do you, you need 100 rounds? Do you need 100 rounds? in America from handguns and there are what you call assault rifles. So Biden points out that machine guns are illegal. So then he says, well, yeah, that's that's why AR-15 should be illegal. And the guy says, well, those are semi-automatics. And oh, by the way, handguns uh, kill a lot more people than so-called assault rifles. And so, Jim, Joe Biden uh, getting along well with folks in Michigan, it seems. Yeah. Uh, let me put it this way. When he goes on to talk about how you know he's going to take our AR-14s, if that means we get to keep the AR-15s, I might be cool with that. <laughs> But what, what he does say, assuming that when he said AR-14, Biden meant the AR-15, then the, when you say, I am pro-Second Amendment, but I am going to ban the most commonly owned rifle in the United States, I think there's a contradiction there. I think you've reached a point uh, where no, <laughs> no, at some point, your definition of being pro-Second pro, uh, Amendment and generally gun owners' perception of being pro-Second Amendment is a division there. Now, I've seen quite a few Democrats insisting, ah, people are going to love this. This shows that Biden is a fighter. And, and you know, regarding the use of the S word, um, I, I first of all, I, you know, the, all this, a whole bunch of guys in hard hats, I'm guessing they have heard that word before. I don't know if that's going to hurt Biden that much. I think a, a you know, obviously, you know, uh, Trump uses all kinds of language that, that has not generally hurt him. I, although if the thing is, if you want to have a contrast with Trump, if you want to say we, the Democrats, stand for something better, something more dignified, something more appropriate for the presidency of the United States, well, then maybe this does start to hurt him. I think just generally this plays into angry grandpa uh, persona of, of Biden. And the people who already like him are going to like that. The people who don't like him are going to say, oh, my goodness, can you believe the way he talked to that voter? Um, but it's the little, you know, the, the, the saying the wrong kind of gun and insisting he didn't say it when he said he was going to put Beto in charge of the gun issue. Like, it, it feeds into this narrative of, of Biden doesn't really remember what he said that long ago. And he's kind of vague on the details and he kind of fills in the blanks when he's not entirely sure. Um, we're, this, this is probably a microcosm of what we're going to get from Joe Biden for the rest of this campaign. And I think if you're a Democrat, you probably don't have full on uh, uh, buyer's remorse. I, you know, I still subscribe to the theory that Sanders would hurt them um, in Florida for the Castro comments. Who's going to hurt him in Pennsylvania? We're going to see what uh, the strength of Sanders and Biden is in Michigan. And most people think Biden's going to win, perhaps by quite a bit tonight. Um, so between the two that are remaining, Biden is the safer choice, probably. But uh, he brings his own flaws. And I think a good portion of those flaws are on display uh, right there with uh, that exchange with the construction workers. Here's the one point I think that Trump supporters would push back on, because in a lot of ways, of course, it sounds the same. But Trump usually doesn't punch down at voters. Uh, he would punch at Sleepy Joe or Crying Chuck or Nancy Pelosi or somebody else running for president or the media or NFL players, somebody at his level or, or somewhere closer to it and not the average voter like Biden would. I, again, I think the the 
the discourse in this country is at a point where nobody's really going to bat an eye at it too much. But is there a distinction worth noting there? Put this in line with look fat, um, <laughs> which apparently, you know, Biden said he was starting to say facts are facts and he wasn't calling the person fat. You kind of wonder how good is Biden when he gets challenged? And being a presidential candidate, you're going to get challenged morning, noon, and night, if not by people on a rope line. Or, by the way, you can also wonder in this current era of the coronavirus whether there should be rope lines. How much should the, the someone who's 70 some be interacting with strangers at, in large gatherings? But again, how good, you know, Biden is not nimble on his feet. How does he handle being challenged? Can he kind of laugh off criticism and, and things like that? And I don't know how good Biden is at that. Um, we'll see, you know, we will see. But I, I, th and I think you're right. There is an element of punching down. Uh, also, I, I was one of the things I just throw in there is that he makes a reference to, you know, uh, shouting fire at a crowded theater. I hate that argument when people bring it up in the context of the First Amendment, because, you know, in, in that scenario, the danger is not the words. The danger is not the ones that are saying it's the dangerous way people react to the words and people getting trampled and things like that. Nobody gets upset if you yell fire in a crowded theater if there is an actual fire, right? This is not really applicable to, to most First Amendment disputes. The fact that Biden's mind goes there to argue that our, our rights that are guaranteed in the Bill of Rights are not absolute indicates, I think, kind of the lazy thinking you're going to get in all this and kind of the rambling, jumping around mentality that he brings to these discussions. Again, I don't think that's necessary. Actually, there's one moment in the entire exchange that works relatively OK for Biden. That's when the Biden staffer tries to say, all right, thank you, guys. And Biden says, no, shush, shush, indicating he does want to continue this exchange with the construction worker. But all in all, probably, you know, the Biden campaign will be pretty probably be pretty happy to get this exchange in the rearview mirror. All right, let's go to the crazy martini now, but staying with Joe Biden, because, uh, Jim, today is uh, allegedly Super Tuesday 2.0. It's been uh, quite a couple of weeks here for Joe Biden, obviously, going from the ash heap to, uh, I would say, the presumptive nominee at this point uh, after the big win in South Carolina. Uh, everybody in the establishment moved to either get out of his way or rally around Joe Biden. Uh, he did very well on Super Tuesday, winning a lot of states that, didn't even uh, seem to be within the realm of possibility a couple days earlier. Now, today we have, let's see, six more states. Idaho, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, and Washington are all having primaries. And North Dakota is having a caucus, so hopefully we get some results from them by the weekend. Uh, Jim, what do you make of uh, where we stand now where it's almost an afterthought? Everybody's looking at this uh, six-state slate and basically saying, eh, I just assume Biden's going to win big. Yeah, I <laughs> think about where we were two weeks ago. Even Biden's, you know, second place finish in Nevada didn't look that great. It was just at 20 percent. Yeah, he got some, you know, he got delegates out of it. Everybody else was below 15, so he was doing OK. But really, Sanders was so far ahead, it looked like he was ready to cruise, even if he wasn't going to win South Carolina. South Carolina transformed everything. Peggy Noonan had this fascinating column last weekend, which basically made the argument, you could argue, out of all the people in the entire Democratic primary process, Jim Clyburn did more to influence the outcome than anybody else. And I think there's a, you can, it's, it's a plausible argument at, at minimum. I'm already, you know, to give people a sense of a preview of what they can get on National Review later today or tomorrow. I'm working on kind of the, the I should emphasize, the political obituary of Bernie Sanders. Not the obituary of Bernie Sanders. As far as we know, he's doing okay. This is, looks like it's going to be a very similar rerun to what happened in 2016. Bernie Sanders got some impressive wins early in the cycle. He definitely speaks for a chunk of the Democratic Party. Although I think we can also say that a chunk of his support in 2016 represented Democrats who just wanted a uh, an alternative to Hillary Clinton. 
uh, who may not have been on board with the entire Bernie Sanders agenda, but who just kind of knew they didn't like Hillary. And this is either either a protest vote or just a, eh, I don't think this is the right choice for us type vote. I don't know if people are going to say, oh my goodness, what an enormous collapse of, of Bernie Sanders. And I kind of wonder if it's just a matter of he was always going to be in this. If you ask Democrats, do you like socialism? And maybe in particular, do you want the socialism as it is represented by Bernie Sanders? You're going to get 20 some percent, maybe a third of the Democratic Party. That's not nothing. That's nothing to sneeze at. That's not enough to win a one-on-one -on -one race with someone who is a non-socialist, a you know, icon of the establishment, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. Um, and I think this probably puts the, the socialist-minded Democrats in a real quandary. Um, maybe the Democratic Party as a whole in a whole in a fairly serious quandary, because clearly socialism is not popular enough to win a Democratic primary nomination. And if it's not popular enough to do that, it's not going to be popular enough to win a presidential race. It's not going to be popular enough to win most Senate races or gubernatorial races. It might work in a couple House districts here and there. Uh, you know, you saw Democrats who were affiliated with the Democratic Socialists of America do reasonably well in the 2018 midterms, but that's not really what, particularly in Democratic primaries like AOC, but that's not really what built the Democratic House majority. The Democratic House majority was won by folks in the suburbs who were saying, look, I'm going to work with the president where I think he should. I'm going to disagree with the president. I'm generally anti-Trump, but I'm going to Washington to get stuff done, not to impeach the president. And we see how things have turned out on that front. But here's a problem for the Democrats. You can't totally ignore the socialists because if they represent anywhere from a quarter to a third of the party, you know, they're, they're loud enough that if they stay home or they uh, decide to vote Green Party or, or something like that, they can really louse up your attempt to get a majority, both nationwide and in a whole bunch of states. I don't know how the Democrats square this circle. Uh, I think Joe Biden is going to win the nomination, but he's going to have to figure out some way to win over the deeply frustrated Sanders supporters. And I have no idea what these folks are going to do with, at the convention in Milwaukee. I don't know how they react to the fact that for the second straight cycle they've lost. I don't think you can make the argument that the establishment has stolen the nomination from, uh, from Bernie Sanders. You know, what do you do when you feel like your movement and your ideas have hit a ceiling? Greg, I don't know. Maybe they can ask the Tea Party and those of us who are fiscal conservatives, <laughs> folks like that. Jim, I think we've talked about this once before, but uh, as an exit here today, do you see parallels between this campaign and 2004 where uh, Sanders was looking strong this year, Howard Dean was looking strong for a long time in the 2004 cycle, and then as soon as somebody else uh, emerged as a plausible alternative that they could uh, rally the party around, carry back then, Biden now, the entire party's just like, boom. And that's all over. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Besides the Vermont connection, and by the way, it's kind of interesting that Bernie Sanders and Howard Dean don't get along. Um, they had plenty of disagreements. And at one point, Howard Dean compared Bernie Sanders to Ronald Reagan, which amused Bernie Sanders to no end. Uh, but, you know, you look at Howard, you think back to Howard Dean, and the, I, I represent the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. And, you know, the idea that the rest of the party was a bunch of sellouts and a bunch of uh, spineless uh, wimps who are afraid to stand up to Republicans and things like that. I look at this and I think that this is always going to appeal. And we've seen the same kind of dynamic on the Republican side of, you know, I'm tired of these establishment sellouts and rhinos. I represent true conservatives and all that stuff. And I guess the problem is that to be, particularly be a presidential candidate, you have to be a coalition builder. You have to appeal to a, to, you know, at minimum, you know, I realize popular votes don't count, but you want to be close to, 50% uh, plus one of the popular vote. And you want to get, you know, the largest plurality. I keep saying largest plurality. You want to get either a plurality or a majority in as many states as possible. 
you got to applaud you got to appeal to a whole large group of people and the problem is as you do that what you stand for inevitably gets watered down it inevitably becomes less bold it becomes less sweeping change it becomes you know uh, uh more of a compromise milk toast you might even say but on the other hand that's what you have to do to get to a majority and that's that's a basic fact of political life and there are a lot of people in politics who don't want that to be the case and who insist no no if we just get purer if we just compromise less if we just stand for something that is that is you know maybe it seems extreme but it's going to bring out all these new people there's a half the country doesn't vote and they're just yearning for somebody to come out and say what we say bernie sanders made that bet this cycle and it did not shake out for him and i think that you know i, I think this should be a glaring sign for anybody else who comes into politics completely convinced that they have the magic formula for motivating the half of Americans who don't vote, which, by the way, it's now less than half of Americans, particularly in presidential years. Turnout's been creeping up year by year. You know, this idea of I alone are the one who can bring all these people out. Very rarely does it shake out that way. And, uh, you know, a hard lesson for Bernie Sanders. Wow. Well, we'll see what happens tonight. I think we already know that it's going to be uh, largely Biden across the board, but we'll see what the voters actually have to say. Jim, we'll talk about it tomorrow, I'm sure. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget our friends over at Stamps.com. Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in 3Martini as your code. And also, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a nice review. And remember that those home devices can play us as well. All you have to say is play 3Martini Lunch podcast. Join us on Wednesday for the next 3Martini Lunch.